Live to see it, friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm excited about the show tonight. we got a great guest, so let's uh, you know, bring we, 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 we do amazing topics on Wednesdays, and we're really living up to it tonight. We've got an amazing guest, <laughs> and we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have an amazing show this evening. I, 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 we're, we're going to skip all preliminaries and just bring our guest out. Our guest this evening has been called the Larry King of the Singularity. Nikola Danilov <laughs> is host of the wildly popular Singularity.fm podcast. You know, Stephen, seven years ago, um, that po- just, just, just seven years after founding it, um, this podcast has had more than 4.2 million viewers on iTunes and YouTube. Can you believe that? That's an inspiration for all of us. It's been featured yeah, on absolutely. Uh, international TV networks as well as on some of the biggest blogs in the world, such as the BBC, Art TV, TV Japan, io9, The Telegraph, The Huffington Post, ZDNet, Boing Boing, and others. Today, the Singularity Weblog is the biggest independent blog on technological singularity, transhumanism, exponential technology, and the future of humanity. And the podcast is the first most popular and widely recognized interview series in the niche. So for the past few years, here we have Nick, he's been interviewing the future and motivating people all over the world to embrace rather than fear the future. We're going to get into that in just a moment. And he's got a new book. It's called Conversations with the Future, born out of these interviews that he's been doing. Nick, you're here to talk about the book, and we're uh, thrilled to have you back on uh, The World Transformed. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure to come back on your show. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have you here, and we've got so much to talk about in a, in a fairly short period of time. Let's just start with the basics. The, the book is called Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century. So you've done way more than 21 interviews. How did you pick the, uh, the, the particular uh, discussions that make up the, the meat of this book? Well, one of the funny stories that happened with uh, one of my previous interviewees that I would not name was uh, that person uh, sent me an email asking, hey man, how are you doing? Did I actually make it in the book? And I was, um, unfortunately, you know, I had to do only about 8% of the interviews that I've done made it in the book, so your interview didn't make it. Mm. But you do Awkward. a phenomenal job, and I'd be very happy to bring you back on the show, to which he respo- responded, oh, I'm too busy for that, but that's too bad. So, yeah, there's a price to be paid when we make choices, and uh, I made my choice. I included about 8% of my interviews uh, in the book, and it's still a pretty hefty book. Uh, it's a uh, close to 600 pages on the Kindle format. On paperback, it's about 500 pages because I cheated a little bit and made it a larger format, so it actually looks more proportional for the thickness of the spine. Oh, good thing. And uh, I basically picked uh, 
the most popular interviews that I've ever done, as well as four or five ones that I thought were somewhat underappreciated or were required to kind of balance things out in a arbitrary selection such as this book, uh, which is basically 21 arbitrary visions for our future. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great way of putting it. Uh, you know, is there any is there any other kind of I guess vision of the future other than arbitrary? Maybe it's almost redundant to say that, huh? <laughs> well, the whole point, one of the points that I'm making here is, or I'm trying to make anyway, is that the future is not written in stone, regardless of what physicists would end up telling you. Uh, I'm just a simple philosopher, so I'm non-deterministic. Uh, I'm a fan of free will, uh, and I don't think the future has been written in stone yet. In other words, there's still a chance we can change things up for the better. Um, and so the reason why I'm including an arbitrary number of visions by an arbitrary selection of, of visionaries is precisely to make that point, that everyone has a vision, there's an, any infinite arbitrary number of them, and what we need is your vision. So it's a, the book is an invitation to start your conversation with the future, your own conversation, so that you can have your own vision and you can start making that vision a reality today. Well, Nick, uh, the, you know, just looking through the, uh, the table of contents, this is a who's who of the, uh, the deep thinkers of, uh, you know, regarding the future. I mean, these, uh, you know, Bernard Benji, Ray Kurzweil, Marvin Minsky, I mean, it just, on and on. It's uh, these are impressive people that have uh, uh, to include in the book. I'm, it's it's, an, it's you know uh, it's uh, I would just uh, commend you in uh, in your choices here. I know that there was a, a lot of uh, a lot of smart folks that didn't make it, but uh, <laughs> these are good choices. You know. So. Thank you. I hope so. Yeah. It, well, one thing I wondered as I was looking through this list and I was thinking about all the topics that you talk about, because we talk about, uh, you know, a lot of the same stuff. Um, and uh, sometimes it feels like you're almost kind of having the same conversation again with a slightly different spin, depending on, you know, who you're talking about or which news story you're picking up on. Or, um, mm -hmm. but, but I wonder, um, among those 21 authors, or just say among everybody you've spoken to, because you've really kind of canvassed this whole field, right? You've really kind of done a survey of everyone. Um, are there any areas of broad agreement about the future, right? Are there, any, are there any outcomes that you can look at and you can say more or less everybody says that's pretty well certain, right, that, that that's going to happen? Is there anything everybody agrees on about the future? Well, there are a few overlapping areas, one of them being that human-level human artificial intelligence will come at some point for sure, um, the disagreement is more about the timing, not so much about whether it will happen or not. Uh, and that's provided that there is not some kind of a global catastrophe like a nuclear war or we get hit by an asteroid or something like that. So falling short of a major catastrophe, uh, most people would agree that we would reach human level artificial intelligence uh, somewhere between the next you know, five and perhaps 50 years. Interesting that there's wide agreement on that, but far from wide agreement on the idea of the singularity, right? That, that one is, um, is pretty Absolutely. hotly disputed. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it comes to the flavor of the singularity because uh, 
there's, uh, together with all those visions, there's also an arbitrary number of definitions of the singularity that I've included quite a few of in the beginning of the book, uh, also to make that point. And also because what's more important, at least to me, is whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. And that's uh, a moment of interpretation, uh, and therefore that's where the bigger disagreement starts to kick in. Yeah, I, actually, let's let's back that one up because you know you've talked to a few people. I've seen at least I don't know two or three interviews you've done with individuals who are pretty sure there won't be one, or that that the the whole that whole model is not a good way of putting it. And uh, as I'm reading you, or you know maybe you're just being overly fair, it seems like you've you know taken the position that there there might be something to those arguments. Where are you right now with the singularity? Are you uh, are, right? Are you... I've stepped back. I've stepped back. You're reading me right. Okay. Um, so, first of all, some of the most notable people that uh, uh, have come up against the singularity uh, are people like Noam Chomsky, who is no surprise, mm -hmm. but also like uh, the late Marvin Minsky, who was a big surprise, mm, um, right. uh, who basically denied that we have made any progress in artificial general intelligence whatsoever in his estimate, mm -hmm. uh, in my interview, which was kind of shocking. And, you know, I, I quoted cases like Google Translator, self-driving cars, Watson. Um, I don't remember if I quoted DeepMind because maybe at the time or AlphaGo. AlphaGo was not a reality at that time. But anyway, right. he denied that those are, he called those narrow AI, not art general intelligence. So Interesting. for his uh, definition, they're not fitting within the realm of uh, general intelligence and therefore they're not so interesting. They're very niche, uh, mostly commercially oriented products. And for him, the real science of AI is at the sort of artificial general intelligence level where in his estimate, the number of people working is actually diminishing as well as also, by the way, the funding in his estimate again. So that was a surprise. But me personally, uh, you know, I started a very pro-singularitarian kind of uh, view uh, in mm -hmm. the beginning and throughout the years, my view has evolved tremendously. Um, and now I see the singularity um, as a lens or as a pair of glasses with a specific color. It's very useful to have yellow or orange or glasses that you put on and you look the world uh, at, uh, or to have, uh, let's say, a 50 millimeter focal length lens for your camera, which is basically the standard lens. Uh, but, and those help you see the world in a new way and take a sharper picture of it. But it's also very useful to have different colored glasses or different focal lengths of lenses in your photography kit. So it's mm -hmm. good to have a wide lens or a telephoto lens. And so the singularity presents to us a future. But I've become a lot more pluralist uh, than singular uh, in the sense that I believe there's a much wider possibility of potential futures than the singularity would uh, sort of induce us to believe. Interesting. Well, uh, of course, um, 
if you if you take it just at the most basic level, the singularity represents a completely unknown future, right? It, it represents that point beyond which you can't you, know, you, you can't you can't make predictions. But 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 you're saying that given any one model of what the singularity is, because I think it's a great point that there's so many different definitions of even what the term means. Um, you don't have to constrain your view of the future to that. But there's there's a lot of other scenarios that uh, that, that could also make sense. But, you know, the trivial point is the one that Yogi Bear, I think, made, who said that it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> so Wait, that's, that's why we try to avoid it all the time. That's right. Yes. Right. I also try to stay away from it. And, and so that's not necessarily a singularity thing. That's more of a future thing. And that's why I've, I've often said that, you know, predicting the future is stupid. Preparing is better and creating is best. Because even if you look at, like, the recent elections or something, people who said this will not happen had only one future possibility. And right. in that case, you become like a rigid bridge. The smallest tremor can take you down. Whereas a prepared person looks at several possible futures and looks at precursors or markers that would indicate that we are moving along a specific one of them. So, for example, if three days before an election, the FBI starts an investigation, which future is that most aligned with? And so on, right? Right. And, the sa yeah. and so uh, it's always better to be prepared for alternative futures than try to predict and then, of course, the best thing is to create the future, which means that you stop merely observing, but you actually uh, combine preparation with active participation. I, I think, that, Nick, uh, you know, go ahead, Stephen. I, I was just going to say, you know, uh, we've talked about some of the things there's wide agreement on among uh, various futurists. Uh, what about some things that uh, maybe there's some disagreement on? Maybe, maybe another way of asking is, it's one of the outlier predictions that uh, kind of took you by surprise when you heard it. Well, uh, so for me, one of my probably most underappreciated interviews that I've done was with a futurist uh, and a sci-fi author called Carl Schroeder. Um, and he's the only, by the way, science fiction author who has a foresight degree actually, <laughs> that I know of yeah. anyway. Um, so he's a very hard science kind of guy. Uh, and actually, I stole the lens metaphor from him directly, from my interview with him. Uh, it was a very influential interview I've had with him. And he gave me many points of, you know, thinking that I've been pondering over the years and I've gotten to appreciate more and more. And one of them is, for example, this general idea, which is very teleological in nature, that evolution has a direction, and that direction is from less to more intelligence, right? Most people in our community, in the singularity community, in the transhumanist community, believe that's how evolution works. But that's right. not how evolution works. Evolution works in all ways, in all directions, it throws everything at the wall. That's why we have many examples of organisms who have de-evolved brains, for example. 
and and therefore devolve the the kind of intelligence they have because having a brain is very expensive uh, in terms of survivability right I forget like forty percent of the calories we consumed is being uh, uh, used by our brains so uh, and also, it requires storage. It requires very specific, narrow range of temperatures and physical kind of optimum environment to survive, and so on and so on. Um, also, if you think about intelligence, it doesn't have to be individualized. In other words, the intelligence can come in swarms rather than individuals. So, for example... Uh, we have the intelligence of ants or termites uh, who make incredible structures, um, or we can even have the intelligence of bacteria. Uh, and speaking of bacteria, lots of people in our community tend to uh, think that we are uh, the latest step in evolution. Maybe not the pinnacle, but the latest step, sort of the most upgraded, the most updated things. Right. Uh, and we dominate, therefore, the world. But that's not necessarily true from a biological point of view either. The world we live in belongs to bacteria. And they don't have the intelligence that we do. And yet they're outsmarting us, out-evolving us, uh, uh, out-procreating us, and beating us in most things that I can think of. And they've got us carrying them around, right? I mean, basically, we're doing their bidding at all times, pretty much. Absolutely. And and chances are they would out-survive us in any kind of nuclear war or asteroid hit or what have you. So there's a number of very strong presumptions in our community that I have gotten to question over the years. Uh, and, and that is... You know that is really interesting stuff. I mean, the idea that um, the idea that evolution moves in the direction of intelligence seems highly questionable, based on what you've said. But human evolution seems to have gone that way pretty much. Would you agree with that? Human evolution, perhaps yes. But what we are a tiny speck on a tiny speck on an infinitely small planet in an endless universe. So our impact on the total evolution of things is minuscule to negligible to probably nothing. So, yes, it's very So nice far, yeah. Sounding. <laughs> yeah, so far. And, of course, yeah. we want to be special. So we say, no, we're going to populate the universe. We're going to create artificial intelligence. We are going to bring the next step of evolution, and so on and so on. Right. Whether that will happen is one... Uh, question, but even if it happens, another bigger question is, so what? Does it make a difference at the cosmic scale? And if you look at the planets and the Fermi par paradox, possibly not. Possibly yes. I don't know. It's an open question. Well, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's really interesting, the idea that um, you keep these, uh, you know, multiple, that you have to look at these multiple potential scenarios, right? These, 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 different, exactly. these different models for how things work. Have you ever spoken to Peter Schwartz, uh, the no. author of uh, The Art of the Long View? He, no. he developed the um, uh, scenario-based planning model that was used at Shell Oil back during 
the 80s and 90s, and um, it, it later mm-hmm. led to uh, they, they started the Global Research Institute and some uh, global business network, I think they called them. It was just kind of a futurist group that was based on this idea of you don't make a prediction of the future, you would write up four or five scenarios, right? You would, exactly. You would, you would tell like four or five stories about what might happen, and you'd probably capture a lot of what will happen in at least parts of some of those stories, or at least you'd catch, you'd catch some of exactly. it. Exactly. And, 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 and you have this much greater chance of not being wrong. Well, I, 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 like, the, um, I, I like the kind of positive vibe that I get um, from the book, but it's not, it's not all positive either, is it? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a real kind of um, caution in what a lot of the people that, you, that you've spoken to have to tell us. One of the things we do on this show is we, we use the Pareto analysis, because Stephen and I are pretty enthusiastic guys, and we tend to want to talk about – you know, positive, <laughs> optimistic scenarios, but we try to keep yeah. it about 80-20. So about 80% yeah. of the time we're talking about all the bright, glorious futures that could come. And, you know, 20% of the time we talk about the dystopian kind of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the really, <laughs> the, the ways things can go totally south, right? Um, yeah. It, now, your book, you end with the idea that the future will always find you. What do you yeah. think? To what extent is that an opportunity and an invitation? To what extent is that a warning? Right. It's what, what warning if you're mean? if you're sitting on a couch and doing nothing. It's definitely a warning. Yeah. If you're proactive, uh, preparing and actively working on creating the best future for you individually and hopefully for us as a species or as a civilization, then it's not a warning. It's a call to action. It's it's a positive thing that we can celebrate. But that's the whole point or the message of the book is, uh, as I said, is, or maybe there's two messages. The, the bigger message is basically uh, look at all the possible futures, pick the best one for you, and start creating it today. That's the sort of the, mac- the macro message. But the smaller message is that while you're doing that, keep in mind that technology is not enough that you need other stuff. For example, uh, we can get the, all the technology right. If we screw up the politics, it will be for nothing. And we can still have great technology misused and, and destroying ourselves if we screw up the technology. So in other words, the technology is only one part of the equation of a multi-element, multi-dimensional equation. Uh, and that's why I always speak about ethics, by the way, uh, because that also is another idea which is often lost on many people uh, working in our community who think that there is absolutely no bias in being an engineer. Um, and bias is one of those things that it's impossible to avoid. Right. Uh, so it's better to be aware of the bias rather than claiming that you have none, because in that case, it, the only thing you say is that I don't know what my bias is. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, one of my observations after doing those interviews is that sometimes people that are the most logical people um, and think they don't have any biases, and maybe they don't in their field specifically, whether it's physics or engineering or whatever, then they go in another field and all those biases start popping up like crazy. 
And what was strength somewhere is turning into a weakness. Right. Um, and so we have to watch out for those things. So in other words, the smaller message, as I said, is technology is not enough. And again, we can get all the technology right, but if we screw up the politics or all the other things, it's going to be for nothing. Nick, yeah, let I, me ask you, um, I was just going to ask, uh, as far as us, um, you know, out of all these interviews, is there one that kind of stands out as, you know, wow, that, you know, that's, that's surprising or that opens my eyes or uh, you, you did mention the one that was a little underappreciated, but I mean, I'm sure there are others as well. Well, I learned something from everyone that's been on my show. That's for sure. At least I'd like to think yeah. that. And I've taken something from everyone. And every time right. when I rewatch an episode, uh, I kind of rediscover new things and new elements, either anew uh, or I just rediscover them again. Um, so I can't say that there's one that stands above all. It's like picking your favorite child if you have more than one. It's, even if you have one, you shouldn't say it, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so you can't really do that without going into all kinds of issues. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Um, you, you, well, you want to be diplomatic about the people, right? They were all great, right? We, we, no, we, no, we, I'm not necessarily, I'm not diplomatic at all. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid to, to, to disagree with people. It's just that right. I, I truly have learned even from people with whom I disagree with, one. And two, that it's not about me. It's about the person, the audience, the listener, yeah. the blog fan. It's about what those people would find, associate with, grab on, like or dislike. Because every interview that I've done, I have someone send me an email saying, this was horrible, you just totally messed that one up. And I have other people saying, oh, it's the best interview you've ever done. <laughs> and, right. and I've learned to know that I can't gauge that. So I can do an interview and feel, oh, man, I nailed that one. And then someone would say, oh, you messed that one badly, buddy. And then sometimes I'll think, oh, I really messed that one. And someone would say, it's the best you've ever done. <laughs> so I, I've learned not to gauge it because I can't. I don't. Well, I'm not, not certainly don't worry about it too much, right? I mean, that's the thing. You're, 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 you're never going um, to please everybody, right? And the thing is, right. the, so much of that is going to be a reflection on the perspectives of who you're talking to as opposed to mm -hmm. what you did, right? I mean, so, so, so much of what – when we do it on this show is we have somebody on it's just remembering – and I, I'm worse about this, is remembering to let the person talk, right? Let them say their thing, because that's, <laughs> that's, that's really why we have you here. Um, well, how about this? Um, is there anybody out there that you've wanted to interview but haven't gotten to yet, that, you, that you've always hoped you'd get to Elon talk to? Elon Musk, of course. Oh, Elon Musk, okay. Uh, yeah. How are the I've, feelers I've, going on that? Uh, how's the progress on that one? Well, I've tried hard at different points in time. I even bought like a domain called Elon Musk Epic Interview uh, dot com <laughs> and I wrote text. I made like a snazzy kind of a cover image. I made a video that was addressed just to him 
and basically asking him for an interview and telling him why he should do it and all that. And that was up maybe for a couple of years. Uh, and it had 1,200 tweets and maybe another 1,000 shares across other social media. But Elon remained silent. So that's kind of a mixed message. So on the one hand, the good thing is that he hasn't said no. But the best thing is that he hasn't said yes either. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, that's a tough nut to crack, I'm sure. We talk about Elon frequently. We do whole shows about Elon. Usually it's us giving him advice that Stephen and I will uh. take time out of our day to, you know, suggest what he needs to, what he needs mm-hmm. to do next um, or, you know, kind of critiquing uh, his, his programs mm-hmm. to date. And, and he so has if a, I ever get him, ethic, you know? You know, if I ever get him on my show, I can tell him, if you, Elon, if you ever need advice, I got the right people for you. If, if you could let him know. I, you know, We assume he's listening, but just in case he's not, yeah, that would be great. If you could. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, pass that on to him. That would be, that would be fantastic. Yeah, well, I hope you, right. listen, I hope, you get to, uh, I hope you get to talk to him. What's next for you? You're going to keep, keep on keeping on, or you, you got any additional projects, another book after this one, or wh- what's the future yeah. of you talking about the future? So originally, my goal was to write two books, um, and the second one was, uh, so this one was based on my interviews. Um, the second one would be kind of based a lot more in my opinions, but uh, I think I'm going to take a little bit more of a break for a number of reasons. First, this has been really draining and yeah. exhausting and took like everything out of me. Uh, it turned out to be a much bigger project than I anticipated, as those things usually are. And then, also, I'm kind of right now promoting this book, and it's not. it doesn't make sense to release two books too close to each other. Right. Uh, and finally, I'll, I wasn't able to do much podcasting and stuff while I was working on the book. So I want to go back um, to podcasting because I love doing it, and people have been telling me they've been missing it. So even though I have a nice archive up there, you know, the last episode I did was maybe about two and a half, three months ago. Uh, so I, I want to get back into that, do another 10, 20 episodes, and then see whether I'm ready for book number two. Do you miss it? Do you miss doing the podcasting when you're away from it Absolutely. like that? Yeah. Absolutely. I really love my podcast. It's, it's like a, 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 a battery for me. It really charges me up. Uh, it's very exciting. I always learn, and, and which is one of the reasons, to be honest, s- selfishly, I mean, among many others, why I haven't written the book before, because I knew that it's a very demanding thing and it's going to take away from what I do. And I've always thought, well, it's better to focus on new content rather than in repackaging your old content. But it got to a point where people were just asking me way too often for it. And finally, I said, well, I'm going to stop podcasting for a couple of months and give you guys what you've been wanting. (laughs) Shut them up for a while, huh? But uh, (laughs) but definitely you want to get back to the podcasting because I was going to say, if you haven't missed it, we have missed it. Okay. So we're, uh, your public is looking forward to, uh, to, to the return of the podcast and to uh, you, you interviewing Elon and, uh, and uh, everybody else you can, uh, you can you can get your hands on uh, it's great work you're doing and congratulations on the book congratulations on just uh, all you've done around this it's a, it's a real contribution that you've made 
uh, as 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 the Larry King of the uh, of the singularity. What does that make us, Stephen? Or we like we're like the Abbott and Costello of the singularity, or something. Like that, I, <laughs> I don't know the if, if, if two stooges or something. I don't know. <laughs> something like that. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for being with us, Nick, and uh, all the best to you. My pleasure, guys. It's always fun to talk to you. Well, we're going to have you back on again uh, sooner than than this last time. It's uh, it's been too long. So. Uh, let's, sure let's, let's plan on having you back on again uh, in the near future. Of course. All right. Well, Stephen, I think that's going to do it for this Wednesday evening. We're going to be back uh, tomorrow with an archive show and then on Friday uh, with an all-new show, including some other geek. So we got that to look forward to. Thanks uh, again to our guest, Nikola Danilov. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Great, as always, talking with you. Thank you all for being with us. And until next time, live to see it.